June 15th, 2022. We're in Masechet Sanhedrin, four lines from the bottom. The third, lo- third word on the line. Ki So if you recall the Gemara, after finishing the principle, the fundamentals, that for 610 mitzvot, Ya'avor ve'al yehareg, you do the sin instead of getting killed. Vahai bahem, the Torah teaches us. When it comes to three averot, we have an exception. Yehareg ve'al ya'avor, what are those three averot? Avodah zara, we learned that from ve'ahavta, the pasuk ve'ahavta, the dirashav rabbi li'ezeh. Gilui arayot, we learned it from a hekesh to shifichut damim, to murder. Kika she yakum ishal re'ehu. And then shifichut damim was the last of our three cardinal sins. And we learned that from Sivara, my hazit, didamadidach, sumak tefeh, and so forth. Now, the statement is that even on those 610, we'll call it the bulk, the majority of the misvot of the Averot of the Torah, when it comes to those, says Rabbi Yohanan, or his students state in his name, there are one of two or both circumstances wherein if a person were gun to their head, told, demanded that they violate even one of those 610, or even something below those 610, we'll define that in a moment or two, what we call mitzvah kala, a person needs to take, or have someone take their life, yehareg ve'al ya'avor. What are those? Ki ata ravdimi amar biyohanan, when ravdimi arrived from Eris Yisrael, where he had studied with Rabbi Yohanan, so he reports back to the academy, the, the Hachabim in Bavil, the following in the name of Rabbi Yohanan. Lo shanu ela b'shelo b'sha'at gezerat malchut. That statement where the nimnu v'gamru, where the Hachamim got together and determined that there's only three averot upon which we say yehareg v'al ya'avor. It's only shelo b'sha'at gezerat malchut. It's only and specifically during times of peace where there's no persecution, religious persecution. If there's gezerah, if there's a decree of persecution, religious persecution of the Jews, even for quote-unquote a light mitzvah, which we'll define in a moment or two, but at the very least we know it's the 610 Remaining mitzvot, Yehareg val Yavor, Rashi explains, and she says it's so that there doesn't become something regular and normal for the non Jews. Uh, to assume that they can uproot our religion. We really have the entire religion, the entire faith at stake. As a result in such a circumstance, even if they're putting a gun to your or someone else's head and demanding something small and something seemingly light, you have to have them take your life. Ravin, Amar Ravin, in addition to Rav Dimi, studied in Eretz Israel, and he reports back as well in the name of Rabbi Yohanan, even if it's not during time of persecution, of decrees of the monarchy, it's those 610-plus yavor. you have to have your life taken instead of violating, even uh, on those, if it's a circumstance of farhesya, the word farhesya loosely translated means public. As I told you, the Gemara at the top of Dafa'in Dalad Amudvet, in just a few lines, will define for us publicity for these purposes, and that is 10 Jewish men. Well, that all being the case, or 10 Jews at the very least, that all being the case, uh, the Gemara's statement in turn, in the name of Rabbi Yohanan is, if it's going to be in front of, we'll extend it right now, based on the Gemara ahead, or to the knowledge of 10 Jews, in such a circumstance you have to allow for them as well, 
to take your life instead of violating. What's the idea? The idea is, as we saw earlier in the Beraita, if you recall, with Rabbi Shimon, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, it's because of what's called Kiddush Hashem. The Torah commands, Israel. you have to be a circumstance where God's name and, and, and essence is sanctified amongst the people. If there can be 10 Jews who find out or who are present for this sinning, that's a uh, profaning of the God, name, name of God, and as a result, Yehareg Val Those are the two fundamental exceptions which are very inclusive with regards to Yehareg Val says the Gemara. They might not be disagreeing with one another. They might be complimenting one another. It, technically speaking, if it's in private, everybody agrees, Ya'avor Val Yehareg. The question is, are they disagreeing or complimenting one another? The assumption is they're complimenting one another. One is adding b'farhesya, even shelo b'sha'at gezerat malchut, and the other one is saying b'sina b'sha'at gezerat malchut is as well included. Says the Gemara, my mitzvah kala, you refer to afilo al mitzvah kala, even on the light uh, mitzvot. What's a light mitzvah? The Mishnah tells us in Pekei Avot. We have to be shokil the mitzvot similarly. You can't compare and determine one is lighter than the other. If you're talking about a light one, it appears as if there is something a bit lighter. And says the Gemara, that's right. It's perhaps that it doesn't fit into the regular system of mitzvot. How so? means to change. Arakta means a strap. Misa'ana means a shoe or a sandal. It's even to change the strap or, or, uh, or the lace of your shoe. What's that a reference to? Rashi suggests that if there's a way, and specifically a way of sini'ut, a way of piety, maybe there's different colors of uh, straps or shoelaces of the Jews as opposed to the non-Jews, and the decree or the uh, demand of you or of the other person is that they change it, do it like the non-Jews, in such a circumstance that Rashi calls it a minhag Yisrael. It's a minhag yahad. It's just a minhag at best. It's we dress or we lace our shoes in a different way, which is a more pious way, a more sanua way, or a more modest way, says Rashid. That's what qualifies as mitzvah kala. Again, just a minhag, something that distinguishes you. I always say that it would be uh, taking off the yarmulke in this circumstance. In other words, a kippah is not per se halacha, certainly not during times of berachot, tefillah, and talmud Torah, and uh, maybe even then, according to some of the post scheme, but certainly not a halacha outside of that, to Minhag Yisrael at the best, right? It's the way Hacham of Adya Yosef, as a matter of fact, makes the claim that everyone should be doing it. He says it's what distinguishes the religious Jews from the non-irreligious Jews. Of course, he's not. It appears clear, referring to the Brooklyn, New York, Syrian community. As a matter of fact, in the book Rabbeinu, Rabbi Eliyahu Shitrit. No, but it's, it's, it's got to be said. He quotes that Hacham Vadya Yosef talked about one of the rabbis uh, in, in Egypt that he was in contact with when he spent some time, some years there. And he said he didn't used to wear a kippah. And he said it made a lot of sense based on the society, based on the circumstance. And so he said when he was rewriting his Teshuvah together this, with this Rabbi Shitrit, he said, I'm not referring to those sorts of communities. But anyway, that being the case, in the even in the Syrian, community, everybody could and would look at it and say, oh, that's a mark of a Jewish man. 
not per se that it's a law for them, but that's a mark of a Jewish man. We'll call that a mitzvah kala. If the decree or the demand is you take that off or I kill you, that's l'shanuye arakta d'mesa'ana. Uh, Rif, uh, be it Hakal Fasi in his commentary to the Gemara over here, he doesn't have it like Rashi as being just the minhag of Sini'ut. He has it that maybe it's an issue of Behukotehem uh, Lotelechu, that you're not supposed to dress in the ways of the non Jews, which means to say maybe it's the specifically that they're demanding that you dress like them, that you change your shoelaces to being like them, which is touching on a violation from the Torah. Maybe for some reason or another it's considered mitzvah kala, but it's not a minhag be'alma. Kesef Mishneh, at the beginning of Hilchot Yisodeh Torah, points out that for Rashi, we're inclusive of even minhagim. I'm going to mention in this context again, even kippah, shelo b'sha'at and Talmud Torah, and so forth. Whereas according to Rif, it has to be a little bit more halachic in terms of violation and prohibition. But all that being the case, again, in our context, the claim is, b'sha'at gezerat malchut, Befarhesya, in either of those circumstances, according to Rabbi Yohanan, the halakha is, Yehareg v'ali avor, says the Gemara. I may have told you, we may have been assuming what farhesya is, but we haven't explicitly quantified it, says the Gemara, v'kama farhesya, the second line here on the Gemara. What is the definition of this seemingly subjective term of public? How do you define public? There's nothing less than 10 with regards to the halakhic term, the determination of asara me'asara b'nei adam. Says the Gemara, okay, let's understand those asara b'nei adam. doesn't say males, it says b'nei adam. Do they need to be Jews? Can they even be non-Jews? Peshita, on the one hand, says the Gemara, we understand, we know, Yisraelim ba'inan. Some of, or one of, at the very least, of those ten needs to be a Jew. How do you know? Dikhtiv, after all, the pasuk, in the context of Kiddush Hashem, everything we've been discussing and addressing, says, v'nikdashti betoch b'nei Yisrael. Pasuk says, I will become kadosh, sanctified, separated, defined kadosh accordingly. Rashi at the beginning of Parashat Kedoshim, Pirushim min ha'arayot, so v'nikdashti, ki kadosh ani, the description is God being separate, sanctified, holy, whatever the word means, but the pasuk says, betoch b'nei Yisrael, amidst b'nei Yisrael. Clearly, in order to fulfill Kiddush Hashem, it has to be to the knowledge of Israel. It's a little bit countercultural. Today we call it a Kiddush Hashem. If you do it, le'aneha amim, if the non-Jews find out about it, first and foremost, Kiddush Hashem is at home. So our nation, do we understand who God is to us, what we believe and accept his status and stature amongst us is. But anyway, says the Gemara, on the one hand, I'm aware and I know that there need to be Yisraelim or a Yisraeli, a Jew, in this group of ten. However, was uncertain. What if it's Tisha Yisrael v'nochri echad mahu? What if it's nine Jews and one non-Jew? By extension, the opposite would be true as well. Nine non-Jews and one Jew. Regardless of the numbers, he gave an example of one, as the Mephashim point out. The question is, do they all need to be Jews, or we're just talking about their being a Jew in order to qualify this as Farhesya? Now, you might say this is not significant. It's very significant. We're dealing with a situation where, let's say, it's not going to get out. I don't know how it's not going to get out. It's before, so I, I wanted to make it relevant 
relation to today. Today it's being videoed, it's being uh, transmitted immediately. I think you can't consider anything not Fares Yad. I'd be surprised if there's a way to quantify it otherwise. But in a time during which it's not being, and there's just one or two Jews or one Jew present, is that going to be considered Fares Yad or not? Tashema, the, the response comes as follows, de tane. Tashema, of course, means come and listen to the, to the proof. The Taneh Ravyanai Ahuhadir Bihya Baraba, the Dirasha here, or the, the teaching of Ravyanai, the brother of Bihya Baraba, is Atya Toch Toch. There's a Gezerah Shava from the word Toch. Now, the Gemara leaves out, it's really a three way Gezerah Shava. I'm going to tell it to you in a second, but it goes Toch. Toch eda eda. How so? Ketifacha. On the one hand, the pasuk says, "Vinikdashti betoch benesa." That's the pasuk we've been talking about. God being sanctified, becoming sanctified amongst in the midst benesa. Luchtifatam. And the pasuk says, "Over there." And we'll discuss what over there is in a second. Hibadelu mitoch ha eda hazot. Rashi says. Uh, that this is by the Meragelim. I remember one time teaching this and so simply saying that's a pasuk by the Meragelim. And a student who knew, knew, knows the Pesukim, knew the Pesukim, said that's not by the Meragelim. That's by Adat Korach. Rashi is already jumping the gun because he's aware of what the Gemara is really doing. The Gemara is more explicit elsewhere. It goes as follows. The Torah uses this word and we have them linked up the Gezerah Shavah based on tradition. Toch, betoch b'nei Yisrael. And the pasuk says by Adat Korach, that God turns to Moshe and Aharon, he says to them, separate yourselves, mitoch hazot. So the word eda is mentioned in both contexts. But what does that have to do with ten? What does that have to do with anything? Then the Pasuk says by the Meragelim in Parashat Shelach that ad matai la eda hazot. It uses the word eda in the context of how many bad Meragelim? Ten bad Meragelim, two good ones, Yoshua and Kalev, and then there were ten. So it means it uses the word Eda over there, and it's a reference to ten. And it says, Eda by Korach, Hibadilu mitoch ha'eda hara'a hazot. It says Eda over there. Now, it says by Korach, the word Betoch, and that word Betoch leads us back to the Betoch of, in Iktashi Betoch B'nai Israel. It's our three-pronged Gezerah Shavah. You might recall just a few Dapim ago, we saw something similar in the Gemara, and I told you I can think of only one other place where the Gemara does it. It's over here, and the Gemara over here doesn't even tell us it's explicitly doing so. But when all the dust settles, what we've derived and understood from this is the same way by Adat Korah, by the Meragelim, who are we dealing with? We're dealing with Jews, entire assemblies of Jews. So too over here, Betoch B'nai Yisrael, V'niktashti Betoch B'nai Yisrael, is a reference to, specifically, Asara Yisraelim, Malehalan Asara V'kulluhu Yisrael, the same way that by the Meragelim, there were 10, and they were all Yisrael, Afkan, Asara V'kulluhu Yisrael, so too over here, for Kiddush Hashem, in order to determine and to define it as Farhesya, needs to be 10, and Kuluhu Yisrael, and they're all Yisrael. That's the statement thus far in the Gemara. The Gemara at this point is settled, but now the Gemara challenges itself from a Jewish historical perspective that we're all familiar with, the following four words, Veha Ester Farhesya Havai. Question mark says the Gemara, what about Esther? What about Esther's relations with Ahashverosh? Now, certainly her relations with Ahashverosh, maybe not certainly. The assumption is her relations with Ahashverosh were not broadcasted and they were not viewed and observed by others, but they were known by others. Everybody was aware, the whole system in Shushan 
was open and exposed to all, they were rounding up women in order to bring them in. One night stands with the king, Esther, certainly had that, and then had something continued with him. Well, isn't that Farhesya? Aren't we dealing with a circumstance where she should have allowed for herself to get killed instead of violating an Isur Farhesya? That's the question of the Gemara. The question we might have, the question we should have is, why is the Gemara only asking about Esther with regards to Farhesya, this public violation, about which we said even on Mitzvah Kala Yeharek Val Yavor, we started the day today, we've been talking about it until now, Gilui Arayot, illegal, illicit, wrongful relations, is one of the Shloshet Hamurot, is one of the three major sins upon which, about which, even Besin'ah, even privately, we say Yeharek Val Yavor. Why is the Gemara talking and questioning Esther only from this vantage point? So Tosafot quotes both from Rabbeinu Tam and from his brother Rivam answers to this question. <coughs> Rabbeinu Tam, his name was Yaakov ben Meir, his brother beats Hak ben Meir. So anyway, the two of them give the following suggestions. Rabbeinu Tam says that when we're dealing with the strict definition, when we're looking to define what Gilui Arayot is, we will not define it as relations with a non-Jewish man and as a result, or a non-Jewish woman. Not that it's not a sin, not that it's not prohibited, but with regards to Yehareg Val Ya'avor, with regards to defining those two words, Giluya Arayot, non-Jewish relations would not be a part of it. Therefore, says the Gemara, it certainly would constitute a sin. It's more than a mitzvah kala, but it's a sin to the extent that Yehareg Val Ya'avor fits befarhes yah. But if it was bitzina, if it was in privacy, it's not one of the three cardinal sins. It's not qualified as gilui arayot. They quote the Gemara Masechet Yevamot, Zirmatsusim, Zirmatam, and so forth. That's the suggestion, that's the direction of Rabbeinu Tam. Rivam, his brother, gave a different answer. His brother says that the Gemara was aware of the first answer that we're going to read. Now, let's read it now and then move back to, the, to his brother, Rivam. The answer, first answer of the Gemara is that of Abaye. Amar Abaye Esther karka olam hayeta. His answer is, he says, Esther was karka olam. Karka, of course, means land. And olam means of the world. She was just land of the world. She was land of the world. It means that a woman, I'm explaining based on Rashi, and some of the Rishonim term, term it a bit differently, a woman in the act of relations is passive. And as a result of a woman being passive in the act of relations, there is no activity. Therefore, the severity is minimized with regards to her involvement. And therefore, it's not considered something that she would need to be Yehareg Val Ya'avor for. Again, what's that? So the question in turn goes like this. Does a woman ever have a command of Yehareg Val Ya'avor in the context of relations? If they're always passive, I'll say that's what Rivam picks up on. Says Rivam in the context of relations of Gilui Arayot. Well then, of course, she's Karka'olam. The Gemara was aware of that. Just one second, sorry. The Gemara was aware of that. She's Karka'olam. There would not and could not be a situation wherein the suggestion of Rivam is a woman has to be Yehareg ve'al Yavor, better yet, Tehareg ve'al Ta'avor 
for Gilui Arayot. The question only and specifically of the Gemara is if it's a public knowledge of the people, the same way we said changing your shoe strap would be something you give up your life for. So maybe even over here, but she doesn't have an act. She doesn't have an act. You're going to say it's worse than, it's better than the shoelace? Come on, it's not better than that. And the answer to that is that even in Farhesya, even in the Kiddush Hashem, Chilul Hashem domain, we're arguing and we're suggesting that she would be considered Karka Olam. Now, Sorry, one, one last second. It's in that context that if you recall, I told you on Amud Aleph and Dav'ayin Dalet Amud Aleph when the Gemara was deriving Gilui Arayot being Yehareg Val Ya'avor, the illicit relations being something you give up your life for instead of violating the Lashon of the Gemara. If you looked at the words carefully, there was just one letter that was significant and it was Tehareg Val Ta'avor, which means she should get killed as opposed to she um, uh, uh, violating. That was an interesting word because it was in the context of Gidui Arayot. It seems to be if you have those words in the Gemara, that letter in the Gemara against Rivam, because Rivam is arguing that when it comes to Gidui Arayot, we're not going to be dealing with a woman's involvement to the extent that she would have to give up her life. That's Rivam's take on this. Again, I was talking before the class about Shavuot night. There's lots to be discussed in this context because even if we exonerate the woman from giving up her life, even if we say about the woman she doesn't have to give up her life, is she then permitted to her husband? Well, the Torah talks about if the woman has relations, she's, she's prohibited to her husband. Gemara at the beginning of Masechet Sotah talks about not only to her husband, to the men she had relations with and so forth, is that relevant? Would we consider this honest? Would we not? I mean, there's, there's a lot. Would the background have anything to do with it? Is honest only if there's a gun to her head or even in the situation of Este? These are important questions to be had. Last issue I want to just address before Charles is, I mentioned this yesterday or two days ago, what about a karka olam, quote unquote, where you're passive in the context of murder? Is this a principle specifically for some reason by Gilui Arayot? by the act of relations of a woman? Or alternatively, could we, should we extend this to men in the context of murder? If a man is a human cannibal, but he's going to be pushed onto the other, not doing any action, and killing the other, would that be considered karka'ulam? That's the question, and that's the, Tosafot addresses that, that issue in several places. Uh, Tosafot's opinion, such as circumstances, we would say karka'ulam with regards to the male as well in that sort of situation where they're just being passive in order for the sin to be committed. Yes, Charles. Is it for Hasalat Kol Yisrael we would draw the line? Right. Yes. Tosafot elsewhere, Masechet Yevamot suggests such an approach that maybe for Hatzalat Kol Yisrael, Esther was able to draw a distinction. Not simple to make such a claim, because the Gemara doesn't explicitly make that claim, but there is such a thought. I mentioned again in this class on Shavuot night that there's in the context of Ya'el, it's brought up as well. Ya'el, the Gemara Masech and Nazir, draws attention to the fact that Ya'el had relations with this uh, general Sisra. Had she have relations with this general Sisra, it's Asur to have relations with him. The Gemara says, Gadol Avera Lishma, Mi Mitzvah Shelo Lishma, or Kim Mitzvah Shelo Lishma, the Gemara corrects it too. Which means to say, she did the right thing. The Gemara praises her and understands it from the words of the Neviah that she's praised above the level of uh, the Imahot. 
for doing what? For having those relations. Does that mean that we should go out and make such determinations on our own? The alternative approach to it is maybe she was an exceptional case because it was for Hatzalat Kol Yisrael. Again, it gets into the conversation of Lo Alenu, and I, I mentioned this in the class, the Aharonim talked about this 200, 300 years ago, a case in which there was a group of people, and it was a terrible situation, they were staying at some inn, some motel, and there was uh, bandits who attacked them, and they wanted all their money, or the woman knew I can save the whole crowd if I have relations with them. So she gave her life up, she told her husband she was doing, so the halakha is if the husband's aware of her relations, consensual relations, if he's a Kohen, even non-consensual relations, he's prohibited to her. A, well, did she do the right thing? B, is she permitted to him? And it's in that context that the Aharonim, no, Uda, and others discuss this issue, but exactly from your lenses, maybe there's a vantage point to understanding Esther, but again, that's not necessarily, because the Gemara will not give that answer for Kiddush Hashem. Maybe for Hatzalat Kol Yisrael, we give up our life, even then, if it's Kiddush Hashem, if it's Gilui Arayot on the line, maybe we can be more, you understand the distinction. Uh, that, that is a conversation, debate to be had. Um, I, I will tell you, in, in the context of our Gemara here, of, of uh, Karka Olam, that's the first answer of the Gemara. The Gemara has a, yet a different answer, however. The Gemara says, Rava Amar Hana'at Asman Shaneh. It seems like a mahloket in the Gemara. Rava's answer is, if it was for the expressed uh, will of uh, the non-Jew just to do it for their pleasure as a Hashverosh did. It had nothing to do with a violation of of, uh, uh, of religion. He was not looking for, he didn't even know where, where she came from. In such a circumstance it's not considered Farhesya or Hilul Hashem to the extent that you have to give your life up because that's specifically contextually sensitive. What was he saying by doing this? He was saying he wanted to have a pleasurable experience. I wouldn't suggest it. I would ward you away from it. But your life is on the line and it's not considered gilui arayot, says Rava in such a circumstance. It would be permitted. Harambam only records the second answer, Hana'at Asman, which makes some of the Mifashim believe that Karka Olam is not a uh, answer that Harambam accepts. Generally speaking, the Rishonim and the assumption amongst the poskim is we accept both of these answers, whether it's Karka'onam or Hana'at Asman, uh, in both of those circumstances, we don't say Yehareg Val Ya'avor. Just this year, it was Purim time. I think it was Rabbi, I could be wrong, but someone came to me and he said that he had a, a, a brother-in-law or a brother who went to a class and they said to him that Zohar says, Musa, perfect day to be here. That Zohar says that Ahasuerus never had relations with Esther. It was a shed. It was some sort of demon. It's unfamiliar. There it is. I was on. If, on, if only I had you then, and certainly it's good to have you now. Yeah. So. So I was unfamiliar with it at the time because I hadn't studied enough with you, Musa. But I did immediately say it's against our Gemara. I said if that was the ex explanation, so it would be against our Gemara because our Gemara would have just said there was no issue for Esther because it was a shade. There was some sort of demon circumstance. So they went back and they came back to me and they pointed out, and I saw this as I was preparing uh, to, as well, that the Aharonim do point out our Gemara diverges from Zohar on this matter. Zohar would have a third answer to this question. Zohar would say, because it was a shed, our Gemara clearly is disagreeing with that. 
which is okay. We find that Zohar disagrees with our Talmud from time to time. Will that have halachic ramifications? Of course, that's a debate in the world of halacha. What do you do when Zohar seemingly or explicitly disagrees with our Talmud? The principle that Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo quotes in several places is that we follow Radvaz on this matter, that the words of our Talmud take precedence over Zohar. That's not in terms of explaining, it's in terms of practice. Okay, says the Gemara, these are the two answers. Rava backs himself up in his explanation and his suggestion that Hana'at Asman, if it's specifically and clearly for the pleasure of the non-Jew, Shaneh, that's different. Says Rava, I'll prove it to you based on our practice. What do you mean based on our practice? Yeah, that's right. Rava's going to describe what they were doing in their cities and their villages in Bavel during this time period. If you don't say like I just said, that if it's for Hana'at Asman, if they're doing it for their own purposes and not Leha'avir al-Hadat, to take us against religion, how do you explain Hanek va'akev dimoniki how do we give over what are those two interesting Persian words Rashi explains they were um, uh, mechanisms uh, within which you would put coals and the coals would be lit in order to give provide warmth what the non-jewish pagans of that time period would do is on the day of the worship of their idol of their god they would go to all the homes in the city and the village to collect any source of fire they didn't want any fires burning on the day on which they were worshiping in their temple their gods and as a result they would go even to the jewish homes and collect these kva'aken dimonike, they would collect these coal devices and mechanisms. Wait a second, says Rava, effectively we're giving them up, they're gonna bring them to their Beit Avodah to their temple, they're gonna light them and give warmth to themselves and in their mind their gods on that day. How are we aiding in that? We should take a bullet to the head instead. They knock on your door and they say, can we have your kva'ake? Can we have your dimonike? And you should say, no. And they say, but we're gonna kill you if you should give up your life. Says Rava, clearly the only reason they're taking them is for Hanat Asman, is they want to be warm in their temple when they're doing this. What's that? Very interesting point. Hold that for a second, Jesse. Let me finish this thought, and then we'll address your question. So again, says Rava, as a result, we derive from this that if it's for Hana'at Asman, it's mutar. The question is, what is the nature of these kva'aken dimonike? Says Jesse, it's not even, technically speaking, being used for Avodah Zarah. It is, it appears to be, what we would call avizarayu da'avodazara, which we call the derivative of avodazara, or the accessory of avodazara. Now the accessories are also forbidden. The Gemara says elsewhere, there are certain things that you're not allowed to come close to in the context of avodazara. We call it the accessories of avodazara. So maybe, says Baal Hama'or, we're learning from this Gemara, that when we're dealing with the accessories of avodazara, there's a permissibility. And if it's Hana'at Asman, maybe Ramban disagrees. There's a, there's a very important debate between Ramban Nahmani and Baal Hama'or in the back of our Gemara about whether this constitutes Avizarayu da'avudazara or just Lifna'i ve'lotiten michshol. Because keep in mind, as you hand over the coal device, you're not doing anything. You're just handing it to them. It's like handing them an idol which they're going to bow to. Lifna'i ve'lotiten michshol, I can understand. There's a, in turn, there's a big discussion about how to understand this line in the Gemara, what specifically we're dealing with. And in turn, it has reverberations, it has impact on what we'll talk about hopefully tomorrow, the Gemara and Daf'ayin He, for example, in the context of Gilui Arayot. How far do I extend 
this Yisur of Gilui Arayot is it specifically for what we'll call Makhol Bishvoferet, with the actual act of sex, of relations, or is it anything leading up to it as well? The derivatives, the, the accessories, the Hibuk, the Nishuk, the Dibur B'Ta'ava, and so forth, that's, that's, that we'll all get into this conversation. But for our purposes right now, Rava says, I can support my claim that Hana'at Asman Shaneh by the fact that we never asked questions. We always give those call devices clearly when they're doing it for themselves. It's permitted. So to over here in our circumstance of Esther, which was Farhesya, Hana'at Asman Shaneh. Says the Gemara, and we'll conclude with this, Rava was consistent. What do you mean Rava was consistent? Rava stood by his word to distinguish between the intent of the non-Jew. Rava he went according to his opinion. He was consistent, very consistent, because it's the identical case, just with different contours. De Amar Rava, after all, Rava said, Akum, if a non-Jew, De Amar Yisrael. If he were in theory to turn to a Yisrael, to a Jew, and say to him, Ketol asafsata b'shabeta. Cut, Ketol means to cut, to cut off from the ground. Asafsata, asafsata is some sort of shoot or growth from the ground, which would be given to animals to eat very often. So he says on Shabbat, on Shabbat, he pulls a gun to your head and he says, cut this, vishadeh, and give it, throw it, lehayuta, give it to my hayat, to my animal. Vi'ilah, and if not, katil nalach, I'm gonna kill you. So again, he walks up to you on Shabbat, he says to you, by, by pressure, by threat of death, if you don't cut this and give it to my animal, I'm going to kill you. What are you to do in such a circumstance? Says Rava, He says, even if it's malchut, even if it's farhesya, you should cut it. What? You should cut it? Why should I cut it? Farhesya, malchut. The answer is, in this situation, he's doing it for Hana'at Asmo. How do you know he's doing it Hana'at Asmo? After all, where does he want the item to go? To his animal. He wants to feed his animal. He's doing it for his own pleasure, for his own convenience. What if, alternatively, he says, Shadeh Lenahara? He says, don't throw it to my animal after you cut it on Shabbat. And of course, cutting on Shabbat would be a melachav kotzer, binisur from the Torah. Shadeh Lenahara, throw it into the river. In such a circumstance, you should let him kill you instead of cutting. What's the difference? In that second circumstance, to make you go against, violate, Milta, a matter, kabaye, uh, he's interested, he wants. In other words, in that circumstance, the whole and clear intent of the non-Jew is la'abure milta, to make you go against your religion. Over there, it's a standard and paradigmatic example of farhesya, of gezerat malchut. In such a circumstance, since his intent is clear, he just wants you to cut it on Shabbat. In order to violate Shabbat, you have to take the bullet to your head. We'll just end with the next question of the Gemara and then we'll return to this tomorrow. The Gemara says there was a question that was posed to the Bi'ameh. The question is, although we've been talking throughout about Yisrael, we've even been talking about the presence of Yisraelim for this idea, for this concept of although we know about seven misvot b'nei noach, and specifically seven, the question is, do non-Jews, do b'nei noach have a sivuy of kiddush Hashem as well? Sanctifying the name of heaven might be something that's relevant to them. The presence might just need to be Yisrael, okay? It needs to be amongst 
10 Yisraelim. But ultimately speaking, maybe the non-Jew is commanded upon and for this as well. Of course, the Gemara will ask what I just said a moment ago. There's only Sheva Mitzvot. The Gemara will say at the bottom. And if you're right, that Kiddush Hashem, it should be eight, to which the Gemara will answer. Each one of them might be paired to what Kiddush Hashem is. In other words, Kiddush Hashem doesn't stand independent of our mitzvot. We have our mitzvot. If you violate the mitzvah, you did Hilul Hashem. So maybe for each one of those seven, we, <coughs> we would connect Kiddush Hashem. But that's the question of the Gemara. We'll begin with answering it tomorrow. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.